Welcome to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast, all about real estate investing in the Calgary market. Today's show is sponsored by Mikasa Home Inspections, Calgary's top-rated home inspection company. Mikasa understands that the highest quality of service is essential, so make sure to call Mikasa before your next real estate deal. And now your host, Corey Peckford. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peckford. Today, I had a great conversation with Chris Fennimore about Calgary condos and using condos as a STR, or short-term rental. Chris is a Calgary realtor that focuses primarily on condos. One thing you'll quickly be able to tell about Chris is he's gone beyond the level of a condo specialist. I would consider Chris more of a consultant. So after years of pouring into condo docs for his clients, he's definitely distinguished himself as an expert in his field. I'll be having Chris on again in the future for Calgary condo market updates. If you're interested in Calgary condos, you're gonna get a lot of value from this show. Hi, I'd like to welcome Chris Fennimore to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. Thanks for being on the show today, Chris. Can you just tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into real estate? So got into real estate. I've been licensed for about 16 years here in the Calgary market. And that whole time I worked for CIR Realty. I work with a partner named Jeremy Campbell for a 50-50 partnership. He mostly deals with suburban real estate and I mostly deal with inner city investment properties and that kind of thing. Oh, that's awesome. So you guys both have your specialties and you just kind of cover each area. Yeah. And I mean, we both know a lot of the same things, but we definitely have specialized knowledge in certain areas. He knows a lot more about acreages and things like that. Rural property, the suburban sort of uh, details around suburban neighborhoods, streets that are good, streets that are bad, that kind of thing. Whereas I know the same about downtown and then just a specialization in condos investing as well. Awesome. How long have you been specializing in condos in the Calgary market? It's say probably about 12 years now. When I first started in real estate, I saw condos as different than residential homes. There's a lot more to know when you're buying a condo. There's a lot more documents and details to go over. And so I thought that if ever people didn't need a real estate agent to buy a house, they probably still need one to buy condos. So I decided to make that a specialty, as well as the investment potential and the potential to get clients that are long-term clients that are constantly buying properties. Yeah, for sure. That's smart. Pretty strategic, because I think a lot of realtors actually avoid condos just for that reason, because of the you really have to dig into the details with condos. Yeah, definitely. Jeremy prefers not to do condos. <laughs> <laughs> And then, uh, so talking about the Calgary condo market, could you provide the listeners an update on what's going on right now, what you're seeing in the condo market in Calgary? So the condo market is improving. It's taking a lot longer than everybody would have hoped that it would have taken. It's still well below our highs of 2014 in terms of value, generally. We've seen more of an increase in the suburbs. The suburban condos have risen faster and sold quicker than the inner city. Part of the reason is, is the influx of people that we've recently had from other provinces. They don't see the suburbs as far from downtown when compared to where they are. A 25 minute commute to the core of the city, when you're talking to somebody from Toronto or Vancouver, it seems like nothing. And so when they can get a condo, two bedroom, two bathroom condo in Mahogany, for example, or on any of the new neighborhoods on the outskirts of the city, 
for 250, 260, paying that same price for a one bedroom downtown just doesn't make sense to them. And so those condos really gained a lot of value because they looked like they were a fantastic deal and everybody went for those. So that was the first group of people that came here. And that first group of people, I believe, were people with money. They sold something where they were, something expensive like a house, and they've come to Calgary with money and careers already. And so they mostly moved to the suburbs. They're buying these detached houses, investing in condos nearby. This next group of people that's coming is going to be people that came because those people came. So they're coming, they're going to be renting places, buying small condos, looking for work when they get here. And so I think those people, this next group that's just starting to come is going to come downtown. And so I think we'll see a boost in the downtown market. So right now we're looking at about 40 to 45 days on the market is the average for the city. Prices are up on average for the city about 10% from this time last year for condos. But in newer suburbs, they're more like 15 to 20% value increase over this time last year. Downtown, it's more like 5 to 10%. Well, that's interesting. So, and in the detached market, I think we're about 11%, isn't it? Year over year? They get the peak in the springtime there. I think we're seeing some properties around 20% in new product in the newer suburbs for the detached houses. A lot of them are up around 20% year over year. Inner city detached houses, still quite a good significant increase there. I think it was still 10 to 15%, but considerably less than what we saw in the suburbs for the inner city. And I think it was mostly to do with the people that were coming. Yeah, that's interesting to see how these trends and the people coming to Calgary, how that's going to change over time, right? Because obviously when COVID hit, everything pulled back. With condos, you know, you're having to share the elevator, that kind of thing, and share the hallways. A lot of people aren't afraid of that anymore. So that's like helping the condo market as well, right? I don't think it was much of an impact. Well, it may have made people nervous. What I find with condos is there are some that choose condos, would want to live in condos, but In most cases, if I showed you a house that was the same price as the condo right beside it, most people would choose the house. And that's always going to be the case. And so condos are a choice for owners, mostly due to price and location. For investors, again, price, ease of care, because you've got somebody taking care of the exterior of the building is already covered. So investors like condos for that reason as well. Yeah. And a lot of these condos in the suburbs, they do have a lot of amenities around them, right? They're going to have pubs, restaurants, and everything that a person would need. Sometimes that can be the draw to go into downtown. It's just like, you know, all the coffee shops and that kind of stuff that are nearby. Yeah, everything you would need is around those suburban condos. They're usually built around pubs, strip mall type pubs. And so everything you would need is there. There's just not the same lifestyle component that you get, say, in the East Village or 17th Avenue where there's actual liveliness, I guess. I mean, the Brewster's Pub in Mahogany is probably packed every Friday and Saturday night. But generally speaking, you don't have a lot of people walking the streets and things like that. Yeah, for sure. That is a huge difference. So it's kind of well known that Eau Claire, the condos really pulled back price-wise. Can you just kind of share some stuff about that? Yeah. So Eau Claire was originally conceived as sort of a luxury area. Many of our first luxury buildings were built in Eau Claire, Eau Claire States. It's the big red brick ones that you see are brown or red brick by Eau Claire Mall there. So it's always been a place for luxury condos. The Princeton's down there, the Concord building that they just built is our most expensive condo tower in terms of price per square foot. 
But the problem with Eau Claire is there's a, never any amenities built. There's always been plans for the Eau Claire Mall to be redeveloped into something that people would like. More shops and services, more residents, hotel, office tower. There's been about three iterations of the plan to redevelop Eau Claire Market, and none of them have come to fruition. Mostly due to timing, a plan is devised, and then by the time they get it on the board, the market tanks or oil tanks or something happens in the Calgary market to derail the plans. The other problem that we're having now is because Sunnyside and Hillhurst are such a hot area, and you can buy a house, a 2,500 square foot home in Sunnyside for $1.2 million. Now, the comparison to that in Eau Claire is a 2,000 square foot unit in a condo. And oftentimes, even though the, you're older, you're empty nester, you may want that more luxury condo, it's hard to pass up a house that's four blocks away. And so because those areas are so nice and so close, they tend to pull a lot of people that would otherwise live in the Eau Claire neighborhood because of the proximity to downtown. Once they finally get amenities in there, once they finally redevelop the mall, I do think that we're going to see a boost given to Eau Claire Market. Right now, part of the problem also is, for example, the Princeton was built in 2002. It was built at a high standard of luxury. But if the owner hasn't renovated that unit since 2002, now it's just old. And so the price is dependent on... So what people are comparing to in Eau Claire are renovated units or the Concorde. And so if you can take that Princeton unit and make it equal inside to the Concorde, then you should expect kind of those prices. But in the condition it is right now, it's a gut job. They need to remove everything, even though it's expensive stuff, real wood, marble and granite countertops, nice tiles, it's old and nobody wants it anymore. And so you're looking at a unit. I have a client with a unit in the Princeton, he's in the sub penthouse, and he paid 1.9 at a high point in the market, but we're looking at 1.2 probably if he was to sell today. Now, if he spent 500000 on a reno, he'd probably be looking at 1.9 again. And so Eau Claire, if you renovate a unit and it's up to a modern standard, then you're going to get a good price for it. It's just, it's not common in the Eau Claire market. Could a condo actually soak up that kind of renovation dollars? Like, because I'm just thinking of this, if you renovate a house, that kind of thing, what would you kind of think like realistically say a 2000 square foot condo to do a full rental on would cost is there any additional costs you know someone would incur versus a detached property some of the additional costs would be emptying it of the old materials because you're a condo because you're using elevators the time it is going to take to remove all of the old materials what you're going to do with them usually you can't have a bin and if you are allowed to have a bin it has to be removed at the end of the day because you can't leave it where it is. Some condos have the option where you can leave a bin, but most don't. And so it's going to be extra expensive to gut the place as compared to a house. Now, the reno I'm talking about, and this is a particular property. So this is in the Princeton, which is a luxury tower. And so when you're renovating a property like that, your fridge is going to be 20000 Your stove's going to be 15000 Your kitchen's going to cost 150 because people are expecting real wood real wood doors, real wood boxes. And so the prices go up considerably when you start getting into that luxury marketplace as compared to say a thousand square foot condo in five West or so. If you're gonna renovate something like that, it'd be a much different price. So high risk, 
but high reward yeah, I in see. the luxury market. You know, it's funny. I've been involved with Renos and stuff on Detach. I've never even considered the whole, like, you know, when you're actually demolishing the place in a condo, how logistically that's going to be challenging. You just yeah. can't throw it out the front door into a bin. Exactly. Yeah, that's great info. So when you're looking at condo for a client, what are some things that you're looking for to kind of make sure that it's a quality building that they're buying into? So there's a website for the city called Spin2. If you Google Spin2, it'll come up and it's uh, land titles. It's where you can pull land titles and registrations on property. So every condo that exists in the city will have their bylaws registered at land titles. And so with the condo plan number, you can look up a CAD sheet, C-A-D, CAD sheet, which is the condo sheet. On that sheet, they'll have the bylaws registered with a registration number. On that registration, if you pull those bylaws, then you get the full set of bylaws for any condo building, whichever one you're looking for. So the bylaws is a good place to start just to make sure that there's no rules that are going to prevent you from owning the condo. If you want dogs and they don't allow dogs, then you don't want to bother seeing it. So the bylaws are a good place to start. In terms of the health of the condo, it's very difficult to ascertain the health of the condo without actually looking at all of the documents. And in most cases, those documents are at a cost unless you have an accepted offer with the seller. With an accepted offer at the seller, the seller is going to provide all those documents. So you'll have a chance to review them. But prior to having an accepted offer, it's very difficult, unless you're willing to pay for them, to get all the required docs that you need to review to ascertain the health of the condo. And at the end of the day, with condos, they are each their own animal. There is some generalities, but really each building is building specific. For example, if we're looking at a unit in a building, over here, it's 200,000 for this unit. Similar unit in another building is 300,000. This building, after reviewing, we find out that they're gonna have a special assessment and the condo fees are gonna go up by 10% over the next five years. This other building at 300, we find out that it's all good and nothing's gonna happen, no condo fee raises, no special assessment. Now, the buyer might buy the one with the condo fee increases and the special assessment coming up because he knows about it and he's calculated that into his price. And so what I find with condos is there's reasons not to buy and reasons to buy, but it's always specific. The people that I find are most upset after buying a condo is because something happened that they didn't know was gonna happen or that they weren't prepared for. So on a competent review of the condo documents, I do the review for my clients because I know condos and I can tell you What's going to happen over the next five years? I can tell you if the fees are expected to increase. I can tell you by about how much. I can tell you if a special assessment might be necessary. And I can probably tell you how much that special assessment is likely to be. With this information, I've had clients buy condos that on face look like they're in trouble. But what we look for more is that the condos taking care of business, that they're doing things to improve. They take care of owners' complaints, repairs are done quickly, these kinds of things. Because the financial health of condos, especially over the last 20 years, have been affected by a number of factors that are sort of beyond their control. Number one being the interest rates. So in 1990s, 
condo board would have a reserve fund of $200,000, let's say, they'd be getting eight, 9% on a savings account at the bank on that reserve fund savings. Today, they're getting zero, and it actually probably costs them money to have that money in the bank. And so that's a huge difference in their reserve fund savings from the 90s, 80s, 90s to today. Another big difference that we've recently gone through is the UCP government removed the insurance caps for insurance, what insurance companies could charge. And so in almost every condo I've reviewed over the last three years, they've seen their insurance almost go by a 100% increase in insurance costs for the condos. So again, beyond the condo's control. So having not a lot of money or having special assessments come up or having condo fees that are gonna rise may not necessarily be a reason not to buy that condo. Because if the price is right and it makes sense, then it still might work out financially after you run your numbers. Yeah, makes sense. Are you able to share just maybe a few red flags? Let's say you're reviewing the condo docs. And when you see this, you're like, uh, no matter how other things look, you just advise your clients to keep looking. Yeah, sometimes I see condos where they've had an issue. And a good example is a townhouse complex I was working on a couple of years ago, and they had tree roots were growing into the pipes for all of the townhouse condos. So their solution to this problem was just to auger when it happened and to do nothing else because that was the cheapest way to handle it. So I just saw that this is a problem that could become a very expensive problem if they just keep leaving it and augering it, pipes deteriorating. All of a sudden you run into an issue where they've got to dig up all the front lawns and replace all the pipes. Whereas had they gone in to maybe remove some trees or solve the problem differently instead of just kind of augering when there was a problem rather than fixing what was causing the problem. I saw that as being an unexpected expense that could come up at any moment. And so something like that, when you're looking through the minutes, the board meeting minutes, a repair on a unit that seems to keep getting mentioned over six months, eight months, a year, time to repair is a big red flag. And usually if a board is not repairing units as the damage happens, a leak happens, whatever, they have to repair the roof. If that takes six months, then the board's not really paying a lot of attention. Things could get more damaged because of the length of time it repairs. It's just not a very active board. And what can happen is then it's hard for me to say what's going to happen because they're not taking good notes. They're not keeping good records, these sorts of things. I've only ever had two condos that I recommended a client didn't buy. And in both cases, the client bought them. (laughs) That's interesting. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Okay. And then could you just explain the reserve fund and just how do you know if it's enough money for the building and maybe the future repairs? So the reserve fund is what you want to examine most closely, I think, when you're reviewing documents, because the reserve fund is probably the most important document in the condominium documents you're going to receive. That is the document that lays out all the pieces of the condo that the board is responsible for and responsible for repairing. And it lays out the expected cost and estimated life left on each of those components. And so it's a 25 year plan on how to pay for everything as it comes up based on inflation rates and based on current savings rates. So there'll be 
an inflation rate that they'll use for the cost of repairs. Usually right now it's in around two and a half to three and a half percent. And then they'll use a savings rate for the interest on your savings usually is around 1.5% right now. So based on that document, it'll list all the parts and pieces. and It'll have a sort of timetable set out. So for example, the boiler, if it's due to be replaced in eight years, it will say how much it should cost when you have to replace it eight years from now. And so based on all those numbers, that will tell you how much you have to save each year in order to meet all of these obligations for the 25-year time period. And now by law in Alberta, these documents have to be updated every five years. So every five years, you'll get a new picture. And that's why I go and I review condo documents. That's why I say to most clients, I can tell you what's going to happen over the next five years, because it's pretty much set usually. The best way to find out if they're funded or going to be funded, usually there's a graph included with the reserve fund study that will show expected expenses on one line, money in the bank account on another line, and any special assessments that they expect on another line, which easily shows you if they're going to be fully funded. But what I like to do is I like to get into it, find out what's been recently done in the building. For example, we'll use the boiler example. They just replaced the boiler because something happened. They had a problem, so they had to replace it earlier than expected. You need to know that because now that number's off of that reserve fund. And so when you look at what they have in the bank account now, let's say it says 100000 by what the reserve fund says they should have 85000 but you discovered that they've replaced the boiler already and that 15000 tagged seven years from now is not going to be there. And so you get into it that way and you start adding things up and you find out that the roofs are due to be replaced in three years. It's going to cost $100,000 and they only have 50 in their reserve fund and they're only putting 20 away each year. So they're going to be short when that bill comes up, but it's due to be done. They're going to do it likely. So what I, you can calculate, say, maybe they might have to do a $10,000 special assessment to cover that cost. And so then I'll work that out divided by the number of units. And then I can say, well, if they have to special assess to do the roofs, which it looks like they might it's going to cost you 2500 And so you can do that with sort of all of each of the components. And you go by what they have in the bank account and then what their upcoming expenses are. Now, it's always good also to talk to the board if you can. It's not always possible, but if you can talk to the board about the reserve fund study, it's a good idea. For example, I'm the president here at my board. And our reserve fund study had $5,000 every five years for concrete repair and replacement. So every five years, they expected us to do something with the concrete walks and stairs that lead to our building. So in the 40 years that this building has existed, they have never done anything with the concrete. And so that's something that will never come up unless some disaster happens, but it's not taken off the reserve fund because it is part of our responsibilities to repair and replace the concrete. So it needs to be accounted for. But after talking to the board, you find out that us being 10 grand short from where we should be this year isn't really a problem. Because if you start adding things up, we're not short for any of the repairs that may may happen in the building. The concrete's not needing to be repaired. Another good example is, and I'll use my board again, 
but it's a small building, 14 people live in the building. And we've decided to, in our reserve fund, they said it would cost 18,000 to replace the fences around our complex. So it's probably 30 feet of fencing. So we've decided to do a fence ourselves. We're gonna buy the materials, we've got volunteers and we're gonna build the fence ourselves. So instead of it being 18,000, it's gonna be 2,500. And so things like that, when looking at a reserve fund and seeing that they might be short from where it says they should be, then you need to talk to the board and find out why, because there could be very good reasons. Yeah, that makes sense. And those interest rates that you talked about with the savings account and the reserve fund, those percentages must be going to change soon, are they, based on what's happening? I hope so. So right now with the GIC, so all condo corporation money has to be in registered accounts. If it's going to be invested, it has to be a registered account because you're not allowed to take risks. And so you're looking at GICs and things like that. And right now, there's still only 1.3 is about the best you can get with being able to take your money out whenever you want. And so I'm hoping that they're going to go up significantly. They should go up significantly because I think the interest rate environment is going to be higher, at least for the next little while. And hopefully that's passed on through the banks to savers. Historically, I know interest rates are great for investors, but interest rates being in that 6 7% range is probably best for society in general. Most of us are savers. There's only about 20% of us, I think, are invested in the stock market or in real estate as an investment vehicle. Most of us are savers. And so higher interest rates are better and definitely better for condos. With higher interest rates, with 5% return on their savings, for example, the Areva building has over a million dollars in its reserve fund. And so if they all of a sudden are getting 5% a year instead of 0.9, that significantly reduces their burden on the owners. And yeah. so... In a higher interest rate environment, we could even see a situation where condo fees go down. That's super interesting. I didn't realize that correlation. Can you talk about condo fees? So you look at condos and one's $700 a month, the other one's 300. Is there a way to kind of ensure that there's value there like, and that the money's being used wisely? There's definitely condo fees that are higher. And that's an interesting question because I've actually had two clients this year buy units in places where I thought the condo fees were quite high. Now, in each of those instances, they didn't have a mortgage. They were paying cash for the property. And so the monthly nut made sense to them. But had they had a mortgage, they may not have bought this property just because of the condo fees being high. People who buy condos, owners especially, who buy condos are buying monthly payments. They're not normally looking at the total cost, the price tag of the condo. They're looking at what it's going to cost a month. They're adding up the condo fees, what the mortgage will be, and they're deciding if that makes sense or not. So what you'll see is if there's two condos that are like similar type units, similar size, similar type of buildings, and one has a $500 condo fee and the other one has a $300 condo fee, the total price of those units will be different even though they're the same. And that will be due to the condo fee because you're selling payments. And so the one with the high condo fee should have a lower overall price. The one with the low condo fee should have a higher overall price because they are still the same, but one's been managed differently. Condo fees tend to be higher in older buildings, most notably townhouse. Townhouses built between the 60s, 70s, and 80s. 
mostly, I would say in my experience, it's because all of these townhouse complexes that I'm describing, they're huge. They cover a lot of land and they have a lot of grounds and gardens and trees and fences to take care of. Whereas you look at a townhouse complex today with the same amount of units, it's half or a quarter the size of what they would build back then. And so that contributes to the high condo fees most often in condominiums, townhouse condominiums, and usually in that late 70s, early 80s vintage, just because they're large plots of land. And that's what's contributing to the high condo fees. Condo fees, if they're too high or too low, that could be a red flag. But again, you're buying payments. And so if I've got a building that has a $1,000 condo fee and it's only a 500 square foot one bedroom unit, but they're only charging me 25 grand to buy it, then that's still a purchasable condo, uh, especially yeah. for an investment. So it really is price defended. The condo fees, like it doesn't give a great indication. You really have to review the documents. You really have to find out what's going to happen in this place and then decide if you're okay with that. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Chris, it's been an awesome chat so far. Let's dive into some condo short-term rental stuff here in Calgary. Um, is Calgary a good market for condo short-term rental investment? I think it is. We do have lots of tourism here. And we're just now at a point where we're growing through in-migrations and new companies. So we've got a tech center that's growing and being supported by the government. Oil and gas is up. So short-term rentals, we're having more and more people come to Calgary and needing only a short-term stay, whether that be for vacation a job, a conference, or visiting friends and family, or they're going to stay in an Airbnb for a month or two until they find a place. So we're seeing a lot of that action here. I think Calgary is a good place for that. I think for tourism, we're always going to be a hot spot. There is more popular areas like Canmore for tourism, but often a lot of people will come to Calgary first because it's where the airport is. So we do benefit from that as well. Yeah. For sure. So for someone that's new to investing and they're thinking about maybe buying a condo short-term rental, what advice would you give them? They all can be good. I would say that in short-term rental, you're taking a little bit more risk. And with that little bit more risk, there's always opportunity for a little bit higher payoff. But again, it is a risk. And that's mostly what I try to talk about with my clients is what's the risk. Because anything can turn out well, but can be high risk. And so it doesn't appear that way at the beginning. With short-term rentals, you're looking at longer vacancy rates. So there's more amount of time where the property is going to be empty. There could be situations where you don't make enough to cover that month. A good example would probably be October, November. These are low vacancy months for short-term rentals. And so maybe you only get five bookings in that month. So the money you generate each month may not cover your costs each month. But the hope with short-term rentals is, is that you have other months that are double what you need. And this money is saved for the months that are slow. Generally speaking, and like I said, the stats for Airbnbs are horrible. There's a number of companies out there that aggregate the stats. AirDNA is one of them. But if you Google Airbnb stats, there's going to be 20 that come up. And they all draw from the same data. They all pay Airbnb to access all the data. Some of them have different tools to display or read that data differently, but they're all about the same. And generally speaking, it's about 50% occupancy in the winter 
and 75% occupancy in the summer months. So now for a case study, I just had a client buy a property in the East Village and he's going to do it for a short-term rental. Now, if he were to rent it for a month, a long-term rental, uh, sign a year lease with somebody, he'd probably be making about 1,600 a month on the rental. If he was to Airbnb it, he'd probably be charging around $90 a night. So if we apply the 75% occupancy in the summer for the three months, and then for the nine months, we do the 50% occupancy, and then we apply the 1600 a month for the year, they're gonna come out within $1,000 of each other. Now, for the Airbnb guy, he's $1,000 less than what the 1600 a month would make. But that only represents 10 to 12 extra days a year that you'd have to get booked in order to equal what you're gonna make off renting it by the month. And so over a space of a year, 365 days, the chances that you could get that property booked an extra 10 to 15 days are pretty good. But again, you've gotta be a good money manager because there are gonna be months where what comes in doesn't cover what you're being charged. Yeah, for sure. When you're doing that calculation, does that include, because likely a fee is gonna be about what management fees probably 20 to 25% coming off. So I didn't include any management fees in any of those numbers or taxes or anything, just sort of a simple calculation just to show the, the revenue the, generated. Okay, um, I see. From doing that. But yes, there's a number of Airbnb managers out there. They charge all different rates. I've seen as high as 25% of the nightly rate. I've seen as low as 8% of the nightly rate. Usually the lower the percentage nightly rate, the higher the monthly fee is. For management so mm. it'll be a combination of a monthly fee and a percentage of the nightly rate at the highest that 25 percent of nightly rate i saw that they weren't charging hardly anything a month on that and so they only charge when you're booked versus others where you'll have 100 bucks a month plus 12 percent of the nightly rate i see your client there that was doing the short-term rental in east village what type of condo is that is that a bachelor one bedroom so it's a one bedroom in orange lofts. Okay. Like had he got a two bedroom, would the numbers look better? Obviously he'd be able to rent out each day at a higher rate, right? You got to think about who you're getting to rent at this point. So now you've got the Airbnb, who's your renter? In a lot of cases, you're looking for something that can handle a couple, a single, or a couple with a kid or two. And in those instances, a one bedroom can work very well because then you're gonna put two beds. So the couch is a fold-out couch or, or something like that. You're not gonna get those people that are two adults that aren't together, that need two separate bedrooms. But the majority of people looking for the Airbnbs I find are couples, singles, or a couple with one kid or two kids on vacation. And so in that instance, so for example, the orange lofts, you've got the loft bed area. I've seen one where they put up a silk screen, sort of like a room divider, and put two beds in that loft area. I've seen others where they just have the one bed, and then they'll have in the living room a fold-out couch, and that will be considered the other bed. And so often when I'm searching on Airbnb for places, I usually don't put two bedrooms, even though two bedrooms would be nice, because I find it limits my choices. But if I put two beds, then I end up coming up with what I need still, and then also saving some money. Yeah, that makes sense. For condo associations, obviously, 
it's well known that some of them do not want short-term rentals in their buildings, right? So is there many buildings in Calgary that are friendly to short-term rentals, or do you think a lot of them are just kind of flying under the radar and not getting caught? So there's definitely at least 20 that I know of in the inner city that are friendly to Airbnb. I've actually instituted policies around having Airbnb short-term rentals in their buildings. If they haven't done that, then some don't have any rules at all. So it's kind of a tricky thing because the city in 2020 stated that if you are operating an Airbnb, you are operating a small business in terms of the bylaws of city Calgary. And so in operating a small business, you must have a business license. But if you look at Calgary's stats on how many Airbnbs there are by business licenses and the numbers of Airbnbs on the Airbnb website, there's like a 70% difference. I think the city's got a thousand business licenses registered for Airbnbs and there's 3,500 or 4,500 Airbnbs total in the city. So most of the people are not doing the business licensing, but in the condos that do have policies, they require your business license number. Half of the ones I've seen require to have a management company managing the product. So they don't allow the owner to manage bookings or respond to tenant inquiries or anything like that. They require you to have a management company doing all that. I think that if the building doesn't allow Airbnbs, you'll know it right away. Usually it's in the bylaws. And because with the city saying that you are now a small business if you're running an Airbnb, most condo bylaws will have the bylaw in there that says you're not allowed to use this property for commercial purposes. So right there, you're not allowed to do Airbnb in that building unless they've specially allowed it. So if a building is short-term rental friendly and you got a client looking and say the building across the street is not, are you seeing a purchase price difference? So there's a great example in town, the Guardian Towers, right by Stampede. There's two towers, both exactly the same. One side allows Airbnb and the other side doesn't. So in one tower, short-term rentals are allowed, and in the other tower, they're not. And there's really no difference in price between the units. If it's the same size unit with the same view, same floor, it's going for the same price as in the Airbnb tower. Well, that's a perfect example then. Yeah. And obviously, people knowing ahead of time, you know, if I buy into this building, more people with suitcases are coming through every day, and it's just going to be more transient, as opposed to the other one, you're going to have people buying and living long term. Yeah. So yeah, in that example, there was no difference. East Village, most of the buildings in the East Village are friendly to Airbnb. Evolution is not the two towers by Bosa there, but the rest of the buildings, as far as I know, are. And you don't really see like the Bosa Tower going for markedly more than the similar unit in the other buildings. So condos can change their rules over time and their bylaws. If someone were buying property with short-term rental with that in mind, that's something they should be aware of, right? That, you know, maybe they buy it as a short-term rental, but then 12 months, maybe two years down the road, it changes. And uh... it's good to join the board, especially if you're an investor in this building, in any building, you should join the board. If you're on the board, you're privy to the board meetings. Normally without a purchase or a sale, you don't get those board meeting minutes. But if you're on the board, you do get to see all those minutes. And that's where you're talking about oh, we're having problems with Airbnbs. Should we do something about that? So you'll have 
lots of warning if you're on the board, if something like that is being considered, thought about, talked about. Now, the one thing to remember with condos is in order for them to change the bylaws, they need 75% of unit owners and unit factors to agree. In most instances, that's very difficult to obtain for almost anything. It's usually in larger buildings, it takes a year or two to get these things actually 75% signed by all the owners because most people just don't care. And so they didn't even read it or whatever. So if a building is thinking about changing its policies around short-term rentals, especially if you're on the board, you should have years of notice because it will take that long just to make it happen. And that's if they have a bylaw already around allowing them. Again, if they don't allow them, if they have that bylaw that says no commercial operation is allowed, by their bylaws, you're not allowed to have a short-term rental in that building. And a short-term rental would be defined as rented for 30 days or less. That totally makes sense. And you're going to be way more aware of those changes that are coming and you can influence some of those discussions, right? Exactly. Yeah, you definitely have some influence. Most boards are volunteers, owners. Most of them aren't experienced in being part of a board. And so it is mostly a collaboration between a bunch of owners who don't know a lot. And so being on the board, you do end up having a lot of influence. Yeah, that makes sense. So we're getting closer to the end here. And I just kind of wanted to chat about the Calgary market just briefly. So we know that interest rates have climbed up and the market's kind of transitioning right now. Inventory is still low. But what are some challenges that you think are on the horizon and maybe some opportunities uh, with the market changing? So I don't really see a lot of challenges in the short term for the Calgary marketplace. We're a very popular place right now for all sorts of businesses and industries. We're a very popular place right now for lifestyle. Our government is flush with cash. So it's all good news for Calgary. And like I was talking about before, we're now in this next phase of in-migration. We're now going to see the condo buyers and renters. And that's what was missing from that first round of in-migration. Now, I don't see it exploding like it does when we have massive expansions of the oil sands, because just the sheer volume of people needed for those projects is quite different than what we're getting today. Today, we're getting tech companies that are going to bring 15 people, and there's 20 of them. They're each going to bring 15 people kind of thing, versus an oil sands expansion that needs 20,000 workers. There's no comparison in the scale, but what we're going to see, we're already seeing a 2% vacancy rate in the rental market. That's down from 6% two years ago, and that's going to continue to fall. Lots of places won't even let you view a property unless you have an accepted application. And so as that vacancy rate falls, people are going to start moving into buying. So all of the influx of these people, they're going to see they have to pay $2,500 to rent this two-bedroom. But if I buy it, I get my mortgage is $1,750 plus condo fees, whatever. So that ends up starting to make more sense. And then you start seeing condos sell. Then you see condos now are in short supply, and then the price starts moving up. So I see in the short term, very good news for condos. The interest rate probably isn't going to affect us very much. It's definitely slowed the rate of increase, but it hasn't stopped it. I still think we have room to increase, especially in the inner city. We're still well below our highs of 2014. We're the only major city in Canada that is below where its previous highs have ever been. Toronto and Vancouver are like 40% higher than they were last year. 
So in terms of Canadian real estate in major cities in Canada, we're still sort of undervalued compared to where we should be compared to other major Canadian cities. So short term, I see just great things. Uh, What we saw last year, maybe not as pronounced or as fast, but a general increase in values and properties moving. For new builds, for in condos, how is Calgary right now? Are we seeing many condo buildings being built? Not for ownership. So I'd say about 90% of the towers that have gone up in the last five years have been purpose-built rentals. And the reason for that is the stock market's volatile. These hedge funds that build these purpose-built rentals, pension funds, hedge funds, all these large money pools, they're looking for stable long-term income instead of quick, huge returns. So instead of building a condo building to sell, they're building it to rent. And they're looking at, if I can make 6% a year on this building, that's much better than taking a risk of maybe I'll make 20 million if I build a condo, but maybe I won't make anything. Hmm. And so that risk is just a little much for those people. And so 90% of what we've seen has been purpose-built rentals. There are starting to see more condo towers for sale, but it's less so than it ever has been. Can you just explain what you mean by purpose-built, like how you're defining that? So a building that was built for rental. So one owner and they rent out all the units. And so it's a brand new building. You cannot buy individual units. You can only buy the project if it was for sale. It's something that they used to do often in the early 80s. A lot of our towers were built as rentals only. Hall Estates is a good example in Calgary, downtown there on 11th Ave. Husky House used to be there. So that's purpose-built rental. It's always been a rental. Nobody's ever been able to buy individual units. And so in those cases, those buildings are usually owned by large hedge funds, teachers' pension funds, any of these large funds invest in these buildings and then take a return. REITs as well invested in those type of things. Telus Sky is a purpose-built rental building, the one downtown with all the lights on it. They built one recently on Riley Park in Kensington. It's all rentals. And it just, that was a less risky way to make a return for this money for that time. Now that we're starting to see people come back to Calgary in migration, like I said, I do see condos being in short supply going into next year. So you are seeing developers come off the sidelines and start to build these actual condo projects where the units are for sale. But I haven't seen a lot of advertisements so far. That's awesome. So I'm going to hit you with a few just quick rapid response questions. What's an app or software you use for your business that you couldn't live without? I would say one where you can do the mortgages and stuff. It's the Canadian Mortgage app. Canadian Mortgage app. And so on that, you can do like pre-qualifications, your purchase calculator, you can set the rate, the amortization, you can put in property taxes, condo fees, heat costs, any other expenses, rental income, and it'll give you a total monthly cost. So I use that all the time to evaluate properties and just kind of get an idea before going in what the numbers are going to look like. One that's only available to realtors they use all the time is Prospects Mobile. And Prospects Mobile is what we use to access the MLS information, but it's the back end of the MLS information. So we can get through the private realtor comments, history of the property, these kinds of things. Yeah, for um, sure. Those are the two that I use daily and Google Maps. Google Maps <laughs> yeah, we all use that one. Okay, what's your favorite book? 
I don't read enough. Is it uh, Condo Docs? <laughs> yeah, that's mostly most of my reading is Condo Docs, usually about two or three sets a week sometimes. One of the books I read when I was younger that I really like, it was Of Mice and Men by uh, John Steinbeck. Oh, yes, yeah. It's that's a good very one. good book. There's one that I have on my list that's not fiction. It's um, Rationality by Pinker. The last name is Pinker, P-I-N-K-E-R. He's a Canadian, Canadian and American. And it's a book on rationality and why we need it, what it is, what it's good for, examples of where we're not applying it. Just I've read some excerpts from this book and I have a couple clients that have read it. It comes highly, highly recommended, especially in today's world. From what I've read, it's pretty good. And what kind of things do you like doing outside of condo investing, condo real estate, you know, with your downtime? Traveling with the family, we like to get out to like road trip, mountain trips, Jasper, Vancouver, these kinds of things. Once a year, we'll do a big vacation to somewhere foreign, a foreign exotic land, skiing in the winter. I'm a big fan of sitting around when I don't have much to do because I often have lots to do. And when I have a chance to just sit and watch all the different Marvel shows or these kinds of things, I really enjoy that as well. Nice. Well, thanks, Chris, for joining me today. And you're just a wealth of condo information today. It's just like incredible amount of information. I'm sure the listeners are going to want to re-listen to some of this. And the listeners, maybe they're in Calgary, they could be in Ontario, BC, but if they're looking to reach out to you, they want to maybe buy a condo in Calgary. What's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Phone call or email. Usually email is best. I like to return calls rather than answer calls. It just allows me to be more prepared when I'm talking to the individual. So email is C F is in Frank, E N E M O R E at C I R Realty. That's R E A L T Y dot C A. And my direct line is 403-589-9850. And that's my direct line. I'm always there. There's nobody else who's ever going to answer my calls except for me. Maybe Jeremy once in a while. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> Okay, awesome, Chris. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Awesome. Thank you for having me, Corey. It was a lot of fun. Definitely. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peckford. I'm an investment-focused real estate agent. I also have a certification as a master home inspector. I'm currently partnering on a property flip in Calgary with Shirley Evans, who I consider to be a professional property flipper. Shirley has a wealth of real estate knowledge. We're going to be offering Eventbrite meetups at the property. So if you're in the Calgary area, we'd love for you to stop by and check it out. If you'd like to reach out to me directly, my number is 587-893-2272. You can follow me on Instagram at PeckfordCorey or check out my website and that's just CoreyPeckford.com. Plus, you can also join our new Facebook group, Calgary Real Estate Investing Group. That's Craig for short. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.